I have been a- I've been dying to ask you this question since we last spoke, and it is: How do you stay cheerful in the face of adversity? How do you stay so polite and uphold your promise to your mother when you have been physically beaten to the point that you don't recognize yourself or and don't like yourself? How how do you keep that promise, and how do you continue to keep that promise despite all the ups and downs thereafter? That's where we left off. How did I summon the courage to will myself to not only look at myself as best that I could in my cell on death row, but to do so in a loving manner? And it takes a lot of courage. Um, people who have had facial scar surgery or disfigurement from disease know exactly what I mean. Our faces are representation to the world. And when we're unable to share a pleasant outward experience to others, we feel diminished and lost. So I chose an image of a photograph of myself at the age of 17, holding up this beautiful fish I'd caught on the Susquehanna River in a place called Tawanda, Pennsylvania in 1978. I was 17 years old. And this beautiful image of this vibrant, young, strong person became the image that I could speak to. I couldn't physically will myself to lovingly look at myself currently. So I chose an image that appealed to me about myself and began there. Once I became comfortable speaking to that person, and telling them how much I believed in them. And that I knew that they were going to find the good within this situation, no matter what. I then had the courage to look at myself and say those same words. It took a while, but this is the core enabling of self-appreciation. And we have to fight through our ego and the negativities that are driven into us by our development, by childhood and such, to find this revamped ability to be at peace with who you are. Even if you feel totally ugly outside, you know you're beautiful inside for the effort you made to be nice to the most pleasant image of yourself you could find. It's like someone can't put me down because of the feeling I have inside about myself. Someone can't possibly make me feel small because I have such a tenderness towards my own self. How could I let whatever they're saying bother me? When members of the public and judiciary had such a negative image of you wrongfully because of what you were wrongfully accused of, did you ever succumb to their perception of you? Or did you always uphold this sense of beauty that you knew at first i had the initial reaction that we all have and that when poisonous things are aimed at you we retaliate and respond don't we i was so embittered with anger and so lost to my anger that at the age of 21 when i first went to death row 
You couldn't deal with me. You couldn't reason with me. You couldn't try to appeal to me. I was frothing with fervent anger to the point of beating my head against a wall because I was waiting for them to come in my cell and beat me, or I was in fear of how much I could tolerate of being made to sit in silence day in and day out in solitary confinement. You speak about a moment in time they called the gladiator day. Do you think you channeled that inner rage to be able to survive and uh, in those activities? And, and, and the listeners may not know what Gladiator Day is. So on death row in the, in the early 80s, a series of 10 foot wide by 22 foot wide exercise cages were assembled in the back end of the prison known as Huntington State Prison. Inside these cages, the officers on death row decided to have fun by making each prisoner on the block that was physical fight one another for their amusement and betting purposes. It was also a system developed by this one lieutenant to quell the racial tension between black officers witnessing white officers beat black inmates and then giving them a vented outlet of picking out white inmates and having that white inmate fight a black prisoner or a Hispanic prisoner so that they could, I guess in some way, level the playing field for what they saw was an inordinate amount of racism being aimed at black prisoners. So the lieutenant in his mind would let her rather see a white guy and a black guy fighting in a cage so that the black officers and the white officers weren't attacking each other in rage. I was in the only prison in American history at that time ever condemned by the United Nations for its active practices of torture. Here's the way it went. Break the rule of silence. Speak to another prisoner. You are told to stop and disobey a direct order. The nurse is called to the block. Four officers put on riot gear and put helmets and masks over their face. The nurse puts on a stab-proof, bulletproof vest. She then puts on a helmet and she stands at the back of the wall across from your cell orders you to comply one last time. She does this. When you fail to respond to her, she nods her head. The four officers rush into your cell. They beat the hell out of you. They subdue you. And then she runs in amongst them while you're face down, spread eagle and stabs you in the buttocks with Thorazine, 1000 milligrams, Halidol, 1000 milligrams, a week of your life is lost to this medicated fog. Break the rule again after this. They repeat the entire 
first step that I just told you in agonizing detail, followed by dragging you out of your cell and putting you into a glass bubble cell. Do you know those opaque glass bricks that they use? A lot of times you used to do them in taverns and stuff like that. So it was decorative art of glass bricks. Yeah, yeah. They put a wall of them up. They kept the lights on 24 hours a day. They could see you. You can't hide. There's nothing in there but a hole in the floor for you to go to the toilet in. You have no toilet, no toiletries, no towels, no sheets, nothing. You're stripped naked in this cell with the lights on 24 hours a day. And every 15 minutes, they come and wake you up for a head count to make sure that you're still lucid. After a week of this, you lose your mind to what's called whiteout because you can't tell what time it is. You have not slept for a week. You've been deprived of sensations other than the torment aimed at you. And you go into a whiteout and you lose your mind, man. That's where I lived from the age of 21 until the 12 years I lived in that place. It's, it's such a strange mechanism of torture because it's extreme solitude matched with no privacy. Those things are never married, but you have you have both there. You're exposed, but yet in solitude. How about this? You ready? They closed that prison unit by a lawsuit filed by a lawyer named Angus Love and the abolitionists of Pennsylvania who were determined to stop the torture of these men that were beside me. The federal courts ordered that death row prisoners needed to be taken out of this abysmal behavior. Pennsylvania agreed to the settlement, built a brand new replacement for Huntington's prison called Green County Supermax. In the process, the administration decided they would allow death row prisoners out of their cells up to eight hours a day to congregate and talk to others and play cards in day room, exercise without handcuffs, no more forced fighting. Well, they decided that only applied to the majority of the death row prisoners, but not to the cannibals, serial killers, megalomaniac mass murderers, and others who were ultraviolet. Well, David, they put me in that category along with 47 others. And they didn't send us to Green County Supermax to come out of our cells. They sent us to Western State Penitentiary in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in a hermetically sealed unit, five stories above the prison in which torturous cowardly guards were put in charge of the mental disfigured crazies. They told the officers on our first day that these were the men you're going to be in charge of who will kill you in an instant because they're crazy and you're going to treat them like that. For the next three years, I was put through so much hell, I kept my mouth shut about it. Imagine this. What they did to me was so degrading, I chose not to talk about it while I sat out and wrote my entire 
prison experience in the book titled Seven Days to Live. It wasn't until 2015 that I was asked, what the, what's the one thing about you that no one knows? And I wrote the book, Monsters and Mad Men, in three days. I told everyone how when I got to this unit, it was so crazy that an officer at one point took on his own personal vendetta against me to see if he could get other murderers to kill me. Imagine I'm in the shower and he, by remote control, opens a door and lets a man out who's got a razor. I'm in the shower. The plastic curtain is opaque. It flies open and a guy covered in baby oil flies into the shower cubicle that's three foot wide, five foot deep, and me and him are fighting. He cut me, but I got my hand on his wrist. When I got my hand on his wrist, he kept trying to twist it back and forth because he was oily and it kept slipping. I kept caught up in the shower curtain. We got tangled up in it started to hyperventilate I couldn't breathe he's fighting me to get the neck to the neck he's trying to slice me he's trying to kill me I'm headbutting the shit out of him I'm elbowing him. every chance I got my legs are tangled up on him I got everything I know in fighting survival skills from the 50 times they put me in the fucking cage in Huntington Guards rush in, tear gas us both, beat us both down, put us in ourselves. It went on from there. He wasn't satisfied. He tried the next guy to kill me. He kept provoking me. He wanted me to react. How do I justify allowing that one individual over a three-year period while I was in that prison to dominate my beautiful story of development of reading books and accumulating knowledge, fighting the system, willing to go to my death, coming out of it and being a peaceful person if I fill it with the garbage that that man did to me in prison. So I waited. And then as a gift to someone, I wrote the book. I handed it to him. That's... I've got a lump in my throat listening to that. And knowing you as well as I know you and your story, not only did that occur, but you were also coupled with glimpses of freedom when your innocence was almost proven before it ultimately did. And I just can't imagine the the cocktail of emotions where you are being punished and tormented and tortured despite having this evervescent evervescent love while my life yeah while while my wife left me i was being tortured while the evidence got spilled in transit and it looked like i had no hope i was physically being tortured by a guard that came in at seven o'clock in the morning and spit my food and threw the food on the floor i don't know how the fuck i came back i did because why let them win? You know, I keep asking people, whenever they tell me, I know my story's not as bad as yours, but, and then they tell me stuff. And I say, why do you let them win? 
What are you doing? You tell me the story, but you tell it in a fashion that they own you. It's still lingering. The hurt's still there. They still have it within them to have their vengeance on you by you living out the sorrows today of an event that's already gone. What are you doing? Invariably, it wakes people up to this notion. You're right. When I tell the story next time, I won't give them that much glory. And I'll show how much I've healed from it. That's fair to that person to do that, isn't it? When you ultimately were proven innocent and you got that news and you were set free for the first time, did you embody what you just said there? Or did it take a while to muster that positive energy and outlook? I sadly had things so unfair at first, I wasn't given the grace to think in such terms. You see, one of my biggest punishments is that no one believed me. Imagine writing letters to all of the innocence projects in America while another hundred people get set free. Imagine watching they go on television with representatives from these organizations and they have a house or they have health care. Like my, my sin was that I forced the system to give me DNA without having a champion behind me so that when I got out, they could use me for fundraising, but they could also give me an apartment and give me a car. When I got out of prison, I, I went to work cleaning shuttle buses at the Philadelphia airport for $15 per bus, of which I had to pay $5 to the garage that I was hired out of for each bus, get my own supplies, and try and feed myself because my parents were retired and had nothing. No organization came to me and said, you're our guy, Nick. In fact, listen to this. I soon learned I was their greatest failure, aren't I, David? The very first man in America who sought DNA testing and loudly claimed his innocent and begged every innocence project, you all turned your back on me. It wouldn't help me. And you're going to punish me by turning your back on me now when I live in the woods. I can't get on stage and speak. I can't get a job doing what I love to do because no one can make money off me doing it. They didn't get me out. So I quit. I walked away. And the only reason I'm doing this podcast is because of Alex and his cancer. And after that, I think you're the last person I'm ever going to speak to on a social media. People I feel so privileged that you, you say that and you trust me with your story in this journey for a higher purpose and a I higher mission. at the beginning. I told you at the beginning, David, thank you for reaching out to me. Listen, mate, I have a friend named Alex. 
I've never deviated from that moment, have I, brother? And neither have I, mate. This is for Alex. Fucking right. Sorry for the misappropriation of language, but yeah, this I I I'm so honored and touched that I have this amazing life. All my childhood friends are dead. My both brothers are dead. Drugs, alcohol has wiped out everything in my life. I'm blessedly able to proudly say I haven't been drunk in 41 years, that I don't do any kind of narcotics. I don't take, take pain medications. I work humbly in a cafe, cook food for people as kindly as I can. I show efforts every day, like the guy I told you about in our personal conversations, who was sitting outside of a gas station late last night that was closed when I finished work. And I gave him half of my fuel for my generator so he could get on his way. Now, my generator quit halfway through the night. I'm out of power, but I got the man on his way because that's who I've chosen to be, David. And when I can, when I receive messages of appreciation for you, I always relay them back to you because I understand, I understand your existence on this planet. It's not to be uber wealthy and to be a cash cow for these fundraising organizations. It's to leave a legacy that's essentially doing good for others and leaving a positive imprint on this world. And you've done that through all the feedback that I've read from you, but much wider than that. You've literally saved lives from your chat. Yeah, all right. So I guess in a lot of ways, the simplest answer is the ethos or God or whatever you believe in decided that I needed to live my message in the humblest way for people to adopt it that I couldn't possibly reach people through the trappings of wealth and having great sustenance. That the ones that were truly broken, the ones that were really in need of of a unique voice that didn't drive up in a Porsche, they were the ones that were going to need me to be suffering today beside them even though the enormous past that I've climbed through seemed monumental, you personally know it hasn't gotten easier. You personally know I'm not having a great time of it, but I'm having a great time with a purposed life. And that's what people want. They want to come home at the end of the day and not need someone to tell them, hey, great job, wonderful thing. No, they know it. They do it because it's who they are, the good in them. They say that 15% of our population as a species does all of the good in the world. Thank God I'm on the right team. I'd like to hope that one day I'm on that team. If not, already am. You already are. Oh my God, you are. David, you represent life's epitome of feeling alive to another person named Alex. Imagine you never would have been told these words, but you are representing the epitome of a hope for a man 
who's suffering with cancer to one day walk the streets of Glasgow so he could feel alive. If that's not the greatest treasure anyone could hand to you, you're in the wrong business. I want to talk about the public speaking and the, the, the book tours and the film tours that you undertook when you um, released Fear of the Thirteen. You must have experienced that level to an ordinary, an ordinary amount of magnitude. Imagine you're in a room following a beautiful presentation, which the fear of 13 is. There was so much effort to have that stylized, unique presentation of me, but to have my energy walk into a room in the aftermath and be joyous, upbeat. I made a point of showing that audience the height of what my joy could be. Because if you think about it, that's what they were longing for. It was my duty, despite whatever else was going on around me, if I was brought to stage in the aftermath of my film being shown to someone, it behooved me to get up there as quickly as I could and present to them the ultimate epitome of joy. And if you could do that to your audience, it left more of a healing for them than you could ever say in speaking afterwards. Why the physical that? act of why joy. Do you, why do you think that is? Every one of us knows we're dying, David. Every one of of us knows we're living under a death sentence like I once pronouncedly did on death row. And as such, we're looking for these graceful features of ourselves that's going to allow us to deal with this. This man's doing it this way. I want to be more like that. No, wait, this man has so much of me in it. I'm drawn to that. See, I am only representing all that humanity has taught me. And as such, humanity will take from me all that they can. I, I see it. I believe it. Why did that ultimately come to an end, that spell of public speaking and tours? Was it COVID? COVID. Yeah. Yeah. How did you COVID wipe me out? How huh? did you how did you manage again to stay cheerful and polite in the face of that adversity once again? Oh, um, didn't you notice, David, life isn't personal. You listen to this, and it's very important. When you listen to someone complain about a situation, they've taken life personally, or they've taken that situation personally, when across the spectrum, 10,000 people that day had much worse done to them. But uniquely, they can't accept that. They're so willing to embrace, run after, hold on to all of the exciting good, will gladly share it and happily flex on others. Social media will put it out there, but we hate it when it hurts us because that's so personal. 
And when you go through your experiences, making things so ultra personal, you then lose all of it to a perspective about yourself where you're either a victim or imagine this. You're the most, at one point, you're the most powerful person in the world and you go around complaining that you're the victim. And I wish this is in our American presidency. If you have that much power, you couldn't possibly complain about anything if your mind is right. So think about it this way. I've witnessed all of the horrors of my life in real-time events. I can only share them with you as memories. As such, it's up to me to share that memory with you as a scar or an empowerment. 100%. And I said this before we started. There's no such thing as a good or bad thought. Believing makes it so. Beautiful. And if you internalize these memories as bad memories or, 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 or moments that don't empower you to move forward, then there'll always be scars to pick at. There'll always be scabs to peel off once again. But if you take it as almost like a bolt of lightning to empower you towards your next move, then that's not just generous towards yourself, but like you said, generous towards humanity. If you can internalize such great pain and really dissect it in the sense of learning from it and labeling those lessons, only then can you move move that forward for other people. But if we either remain if we if we either remain in pain over those events, or even worse so, ignorant to the events and vault them off as if they never happened. We're doing greater humanity a disservice, I believe. Maybe in the aftermath of what you just beautifully spoke of, you can truly appreciate when I say to you, my going to death row was the greatest experience of my life. I don't think I would have ever imagined someone ever seeing a lane like that especially when it was wrongful but i I, but but knowing you as well as i know you i know why you said that yeah because it had no relevance to being innocent i'm talking about the perspective that going into the most ultra tough challenging situation where i literally at times had to fight for my life was the greatest experience of my life to live through. It gave me composure unmatched, a education that I couldn't have got had I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars at university for. It gave me talented speaking ability that's taken me across the globe. It has given me a depth of wealth in terms of my own development, I could have never achieved had I not gone to death row. So why is it not the greatest experience of my life? You have eliminated what I just said. You took something that could have been seen as a scar or a scab and let it be something you're internally grateful for. And And this was a lesson. And you have passed that on to, to, to people in order 
and, and sums of thousands, if not tens of thousands. Which, and here we go. And the summation of it all is you and I are speaking today for the same exact reason. I'm trying to teach the world how good can come out of anything. And the proof is that a ignorant woman spit in a waitress's face. That waitress invited me to work at her place of work. That incident led me to Alex. That incident led me to you. I love where we left off. Yeah, you took the dog for a walk, told your neighbor what you were up to. I went down to the ranch, helped the guy, uh, my neighbor, uh, with his electrical cords and um, tried to get the uh, tractor going that he's been trying to get started. And we find out how it's all so synchronistic that your neighbor, upon your walk with the dog, tells you about the 20% of the world's population does all the good. And you corrected him and said, hold on, mate, it's 15%. My friend Nick just told me about it. And it was all so beautifully alive, isn't it? Yeah, and for the listeners' sake, we just took a we just took a break there for fifteen minutes so I could walk my dog and Nick could see to um his, his neighbor's problems and like Nick illuminated there, my neighbor literally aligned with what Nick just brought to life and I couldn't believe it. I I, I don't believe in spirituality. I don't believe in coincidence, but that freaked me out hugely. Well, spirituality is energy, so you have to believe in energy. E equals MC squared. On the moment you became conceived, energy began. On the moment that you were born, that energy was set free upon the earth, and that is spiritual. We are a fascinating creature, and our energy is spiritual. That's why you and I were talking about how when you hear the truth, the molecules in your body become excited, and you get covered with chills up and down your spine. Because we're energy that's spiritual and we're guided by our chemistry. The mastery of it all is really beautiful how we're trailing off into the segue of all segues for things. Is that it's your ability to put balance in all of these that make you who you are. So you don't really have to believe in a organized religion to believe in spirituality. If it's energy-based, everyone can get behind energy never dies. So we just rationalize that the fifth element is memory within the elements. So if that's true, my energy will have a memory somehow when it passes through my body. And I think one thing that some of us are so innately or acutely bad for doing is denoting spirituality to a certain camp or religion or group of people. And I think what that's what I I think when especially in today's society, when you when you admire a celebrity or a political figure, you're seen as believing all of their traits and believing all of their virtues instead of just appreciating some of the elements that make them them same with spirituality i don't have to be fully embedded in spirituality and to be externally perceived as such 
but I can lean on some of the aspects, the scientific aspects that, that back it without having, exactly. to be, right. without having to be perceived as being a spiritual person or a follower well, of spirituality, right? I can just lean on some of the principles. Yeah, that's the two points that guided my life is one of the reasons I've read all of the world's religions is that I could have respect for the way other people thought and believed. I wanted to respect that and understand it. I didn't want to attack it in ignorance and say, my God's better than you or some silly thing like that. I wanted to give credence to what they thought so I could understand maybe I could learn. So the other one is like you said, spirituality is a strange thing. When we focus too much on an individual as a whole, and like you say, we get noted for being caught up in the social media, especially for endorsing so much of what that person does, even though they have certain beliefs that we identify with. And there's a strange thing that we have to separate the two. Whereas it's better in our personal lives when we find people that are more like us and they're all around you, like you're relating to me, the lovely woman that you interviewed and how this person off the street just gave you so much because it was personalized and it was invested, you know? So I think about it this way. I have a duty to try and not damage my energy so that wherever it goes, I haven't left a stain on it as best that I'm able to. And if that makes me a pious or a religious person, I'm not really put off by that because scientifically it is shown that if you kneel in prayer, you're causing neuroplasticity healing. If your prayers are pure and your thoughts are kind, you're actually kind to yourself in neuroplasticity healing that's why praying listen to the music playing with animals being in nature are all releases of toxins toxins implanted into you by other human forms and energy to cleanse yourself of this one of the stages is to pray now you don't have to pray to an entity you could pray for a person to have good you could pray that the universe gives this person like Alex a chance to go to Scotland. That's what I did. I didn't say, oh, mighty God, I know you're all powerful. No, I said, if it's possible to the heavens above, can you please help my friend? You said to me that you don't want to leave a stain on your energy. And you've provided me with the greatest gift, which is your appearance on this podcast, but also the relationship that I have with you. Why are you no longer feeling the need or desire to venture onto social media platforms and share your story or go on further podcasts? This is so beautifully poignant and so apropos. Would you rather be the image of James Dean and Marilyn Monroe or Ronnie Woods and Mick Jagger. Uh, obviously, everyone wants to be the fashionably stud-like image. So the point that I was coming to in my life was, 
where do I leave the most powerful image for others without my self-indulgence being overridden that they see me at 90 trying to bust out a speech and I'm stuttering or I'm faltering. I get it that they would have empathy and they would encourage it and be amazing. That's not fair to those who want the vibrancy. David, we're drawn to the strongest of our species for a reason. We're seeking within them what we know we could have possibly within us. I want to do it this way. For the last 17 years of my free existence on this planet, I did as much as I possibly could using the social media to empower others to adopt anything that I put forth in the hopes that I made it better by doing so. But knowing when to stop is as important as it is to know when to begin. I got out of prison with this Pollyannish, innocent-like notion of myself. And I went forth and I did some truly remarkable things, speaking before the Human Rights Convention in Geneva, speaking on stage in Rome, in Paris, in London, Holland, and around the world. Having these great opportunities satisfies any ego need for me to continue. I've achieved things that are truly empowering to me personally to hold on to. I don't, I always go back to the Kurt Vonnegut story where he got only so much money for writing Catch-22, but he's in a billionaire's house. And he's being mocked by a, a co-patron of the party who says, this guy makes more in a week than you got for all of your movie." And he goes, yeah, but the difference is I have enough. David, I've had enough of the experience on the social media that if I leave now with the correct message, just like not trying to do any harm to my energy, I don't want to do harm to my message. Imagine it this way. You're the director of your own film, which is your life. You're the protagonist within the film, but you're also the audience. And in this realm, you can project upon the screen the most beautiful love affair that is truly yours, the most amazing friendships that you want for yourself. You can paint the picture of life that you so desire and enjoy it in the audience at the same time in self-appreciation if you so choose. But having the wisdom to understand that comes to know when it is time to shut it all down and just go back to being the next person. One of the treats I had was recently going and getting employment in a restaurant where no one knew me other than my first name. For weeks, they had no clue who I was until I shared that with them because I wanted to be identified by them as Nick, the guy who's cooking these amazing eggs Benedict and making these amazing plates of food for others. And I showed you the imagery. I, I really love cooking. And so it taught me again, I am correcting feeling this. I made a real beautiful effort on this social media to explain who I was, share my message of hope and determination 
I hope I haven't embarrassed myself too badly, but I've always been sincere and it's enough. So if that's the case, I think today is the greatest day to say to the social media, with my friendship with you included, it's been a wonderful ride, Dave, and I've really had a good time of it. Now it's your turn. You're up. Take it further. Go be that, yeah? Meanwhile, I have a new documentary coming out. My books will be available. People will always be able to share my art. I need do nothing more than go be a happy guy who helped that motorcyclist last night at the gas station that was closed and got him home. Yeah. I was immediately going to ask, now we've just reflected on the last 17 years, I was going to ask what the next 17 might look like. But then I realized that by not asking that and for you not to pay the specific roadmap, a precise roadmap, being becomes a verb, not a noun. Whereas if I were to ask you that question and you were to say, well, I'm going to be a lecturer or I'm going to be an author, you will, you will, you become a noun instantly. Only be that. Yeah. Whereas, only become that. Whereas not having a path opens so many doors for you. And if you, from what I know of you, your innate message is to put, to, to, to spread positivity, but the innate message that I have from you is to continue to prescribe and share positivity. There's so many mediums in which you can deliver that, whether that is on a global conference or just making a delicious meal for someone and saying they, they look nice that day, or you like the way they smile when they tell a joke. From a dopaminergic point, young of, man. From a dopaminergic point young of view, man. Our, our brain can't distinct the feeling, the, the, the enthralling nature of speaking globally in a conference and the enthralling nature of someone saying thank you for your amazing meal. Your brain registers that with the same intensity. So if you have a North Star of just providing positive energy for humanity, there is thousands, if not millions, of delivery mechanisms of that. It doesn't need to be an ego-driven conference or an ego-driven book release you can do that as part of the motions of your everyday so if you treat the next 17 years as a verb and not a noun then i have full trust that um you will continue to to leave that legacy nick that's beautiful david because i was thinking it's so strange alex and i were talking at the ocean side and there was this conversation we had about this japanese scientist who offered a glass of water to people and then encouraged them to have hateful thoughts and then froze that water immediately. And then offered the same to a person and asked them to think of their child in loving thoughts. The molecules froze differently. Why? Completely different. Because hate and love are energy and they were infused into the glass when it froze and they froze differently. If that's true, Every time I touch a plate, I'm lovingly giving my heart to this person to consume this food. I know somehow beyond my ability to understand it, they get that. And if that's what I can do for the next 17 years, to find the way to feed another my good, then I have no failures ahead of me. I think that's the message I want to end up on, Nick.
I think. It's so. I, I think if this conversation was an orange, then we have squeezed to the pulp and delivered the juice, <laughs> if I'm honest. Um, I want to uh, I want to say I, I, I usually see at the end of these podcasts that where can the people find you online? Where can the people buy your content? I, I don't feel the, the necessity to do that. What action, what call to I action do you want people to take away from this podcast if it's not reach out to you directly? All right, first and foremost, let's get my friend Alex to Scotland so he could feel alive while his cancer is kicking his ass and doesn't accept his kindness. Let's reinvigorate my friend. Um, as you know, um, a brilliant friend of both of us now just built a website for me, Nicaragua's official. I don't even have logon controls, but I'm sure people can message me if they want. My idea is to be available to people, but I'm not going to post any imagery. I'm not going to show myself to the world as I further along. I'm going to be connected to people through the social media in friendships, but not post and submit my content for free to the social media. So I'm taking control of it in the way that allows me to stay in touch with you because you could send me a message on an app or I can see your efforts on the app if I so choose. You see? Mm -hmm. So I don't need to put out content any further. I've written uh, books that I may or may not publish, but I've wrote them for the meanings in my life, the things that mattered to me. And I'm so at peace with myself. I don't want this podcast as a hustle for me to do sales. Like you said, it's anticlimactic. If it, the segue of all segues of you being off of the platforms of social media, you should shouldn't end it with and for 9.99 you can no that's that's not be that guy right look this is all true there's a abandoned house on the property there's my motorhome parked in the woods i don't have free-flowing electricity yet but as you know someone's trying to help me my dogs are in a kennel back there as well in the protection of the shade under the trees here because in the next few days it's going to be 100 degrees up here like 42 celsius and i don't have any fears or worries about me or myself or my dogs or anything because i already figured it out if i haven't put out enough the, the world will let me know if I have and I've chosen right and I can peacefully go on my way without recognition then I've chosen right and it'll be shown to me but I don't have any concerns about it because I don't care what I do or don't have no one can take my kindness and I can find good in every day isn't well, that what they're all seeking well Nick I, I, I wish that stays consistent for you and I'm sure it will. Thank you for this privilege. Like I said, I reached out to you when the podcast was just an idea or when it was 10 episodes in. And now we made this happen. Not because of relentless sales from me or pitching from me, just because I shared my kindness online and you observed it and you, you knew the time was right and you reached out to me. 
and we shared this moment together. So I'm so thankful, Nick. I, I, I appreciate our relationship and I, re- I appreciate this podcast and your time and everything else in between. I hope you remember these words, but in the shortest time that I've known you, I've seen your growth. And I know you can't see it yet, but imagine that that's real. When other people who know you can already see your growth, I promise you, David, it's happening. And five years from now, when you look back on today, you'll still be able to pull up these feelings. That's how much I believe in you. And that's partially the selfish reason I have this podcast is that each episode is a signpost of a previous version of myself and a previous relationship that I've created a relationship that had moved me forward in that moment of time. And for the rest of my life, given that I have internet access, I can learn from each previous version of David. And hopefully hopefully the, the development by David podcast is not about me growing, but sharing the growth together. So Nick, I think we achieved that today. That's for sure. You've definitely drawn from yourself so much at a young age I'm proud of that. And I always make this equation. You at your current age are far more brighter and stronger than I was at the same age. So you have to surpass me and you have to be stronger than me because that is our design. And by no fault of your own, you've tapped into this and you will be this because the mastery of uh, of charisma true charming nature of a human being only comes out when they master kindness if you don't believe me attend a Smokey Robinson converse, uh, concert watch him afterwards beg his audience to let him go and people will fall to their knees to say yes because he's so charming he overwhelms you Okay, I'll check that out. And hopefully I can it's true. learn that and embody that and take that forward, Nick. Yeah, the strongest things you'll ever know about yourself are never about your muscles. It's about what's in your heart, which is the only organ that can generate kindness. They say the heart of a champion is strong. I make the heart of a champion look weak because... My heart is generated by kindness, not power. I can't be stopped. You're the the kindest tyrant of anything. (laughs) It's, I love it. All right, so David, do you know the best thing is each chance we had before the recording sessions, we had just as much fun smiling and laughing, which is so nice because that's what I wanted the end of my efforts to be hanging out with a bro, laughing about things, and just being genuinely us. Like, this couldn't be scripted more beautiful. And I'm, I'm thanking you from the bottom of my heart. To anyone who watches this, please bear with me while I say to you, I love you. I love you for the times no one has said that to you. I love you for those times you couldn't care enough for yourself because I think that's the thing that we all need someone to say that to us so if you watch this one episode of development by david please understand it was my hope that you could feel 
the same thing he and I shared, that we have to, as human beings, be kind to one another because it makes us who we are. And that's a wrap, Nick. That's a wrap. That's, that's a wrap, bro. That's I love you, boy. I'll talk to you, you soon, yeah? <laughs> what a day. <laughs> <laughs>